This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello, and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we look at all of our favorite horror films from the classic the camp to the cringe through the lens of disability. I am your host, Nicole, and I am thrilled to have you here. So before we get into what we are talking about today, I am so excited to be joined by Rebecca McCallum. Rebecca is the assistant editor of the Fantastic Goals magazine, and senior contributor at the Moving Pictures Film Club, where you can find her writing about, appropriately enough, the complex and engaging women that are part of Hitchcock's filmography. Just this year, Rebecca launched the Talking Hitchcock podcast that explores the divisive director's films in depth. I absolutely love this podcast and appreciate the often unexplored corners of these classics so that they get a spotlight in the examination. So welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm so excited to have you here. I think um, I think this is going to be a really, really wonderful uh, conversation. Now, here on the pod, we've talked a little bit about Hitchcock before when we covered Rear Window. And it goes without saying that there are a lot um of themes connected um in various ways to disability that pop up in Hitchcock's films. And I know I figured if we were going to dig into that world again, I would want an expert on hand as kind of a guide. So um yes, I could not think of anyone better to have along uh than you, Rebecca. So Rebecca, why before we actually get into, I guess, discussing, uh, well, kind of going into what we're going to talk about um, with with Hitchcock today, talk to me a little bit about your your interest and your history <laughs> with Hitchcock. Yeah. yeah so, so thank you for asking. It's really something that the more I think about, it's it's something that evolves at the same time as my passion for horror as well. And I and I think for a lot of people, there's that crossover between Hitchcock and horror. Um, and really, that's a passion that's just grown and grown. And I think particularly doing my series with Even Pictures Film Club, that's something that I. It was a it was a field that was really dominated by male voices and and I really wanted to bring a female perspective to to Hitchcock and and I couldn't think of a better way to do that than begin by looking at the women of his films through a female perspective mm-hmm. and that was really important to me um who knows maybe maybe after this series is done I will do a female perspective on the men of Hitchcock's films <laughs> and that would be interesting I'm sure um and and just from there really it's it's a there's a there's a lot of themes in Hitchcock about ambiguity, the uncanny that really resonate with me. And just this uh 
Hitchcock's a world builder. So for me, just being able to, as we do in horror, we just, you know, pull back a curtain and enter into a, a new world. And it's just thematically, it's fantastic. And it just, it's something that just seems to keep giving over time. And, you know, I can't think of many other directors that had just hit after hit of incredible films. And I think, well, I often say, you know, we can come to Hitchcock's films as entertainment and they're there for entertainment purposes. But then if we want to, that there is a lot of complexities underneath that, you know, if we want to dig into them more sort of theoretically and from that, I guess, that more analytical perspective, which is what I really enjoy, mm-hmm. then it's it's there for that as well. Um, and, you know, Hitchcock's, as you said, quite rightly, he he is a a figure that straddles controversy um, and, you know, he was a man of contradictions. And I think, you know, we're going to be talking specifically today about um, mothers and Hitchcock. So we're looking at females again. And I just think Hitchcock somebody that when it comes to gender, it's, it is again quite ambiguous because on the, on the one, on the one side, uh, you know, you've got the Hitchcock blonde and all that talk and accounts of some behaviours that have gone on behind the scenes. But then when we really look at his films, and I know that a lot of people really read characters like the Jimmy Stewart characters, the Cary Grants, as being the the protagonists of these films. But the more you look, actually, Hitchcock was so in tune he was so I really feel like he's living through his female characters in his films and they're they're not passive women they're very active they're very knowledgeable Mm -hmm. and so again we've got that ambiguity of of what's being presented and what's uh, there's just so many complexities there that I really enjoy exploring as well and I like the a lot of the time I speak about one of the, the appeals is like the complicit and how he invites us he'll often say with Vertigo he'll really pull us in through the Jimmy Stewart character and 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 we're on board we spend time with him it's like this is our protagonist we know where we are and then he'll do something that just sets that off balance and then we'll feel oh I I invested in this character and now I feel like slightly icky about that (laughs) you know um, and then, as you said, this year, I, I decided to launch my podcast. And that was really because I wanted to do things like this, Nicole. I just wanted to talk to more people about Hitchcock and, and share perspectives and and try and answer some of those like big questions. Oh, I love that so much. And I think you raised such, such an interesting point about just, I mean, the, the female characters in Hitchcock it really can't be overstated just how dynamic and modern and um, capable these women are and how really, truly, fully formed these characters are. It's uh, it's something that uh, really strikes me every time I watch a Hitchcock film. You always have, as you know, taking in all of these components of the time that these films are made and and all of this you you kind of come in like all right what kind of ridiculous decisions are these characters going to make 
in this film. And, you know, and then the men will, will make uh, a choice or two that kind of leave you perplexed. But the women always seem so grounded, in control, and so assured of themselves. Um, they, I, I kind of have to rack my brain to think of a female character in films that I've even just watched recently of Hitchcock's that, uh, that just don't have like this confidence to them and are able to really assert themselves in just kind of wonderful and dynamic ways. So I, I, I really love kind of that draw to the female characters. Now you kind of talked about connecting this to your overall love of horror and kind of how they melded. Um, was Hitchcock kind of like your, was it kind of like an entry point to horror for you? Or was it something that as you were kind of getting yourself into the genre, you, you kind of discovered and latched onto Hitchcock too? Very interesting question. I think, and I'm always trying to trace back and I'm always finding more things like with horror. I, I, I always say I was obsessed with the Wizard of Oz from a very young age. And I think, you know, it's that, it's the, I always say it's the, it's almost the alchemy of what excites me and what terrifies me is what Mm. I find so appealing. Um, but with Hitchcock, yeah, I, Psycho was the, my entry point into Hitchcock. Mm. Um, and I pretty much remember, seriously getting into Hitchcock at pretty much the same time as horror and really just going and revisiting first you know the big ones the birds north by northwest where to go and then really going into my 20s starting to to look more wholly at his career as a not just as these singular uh singular entries but as a filmography as a body of work and I think the more you you do that, actually, you see how much the films, yeah, I mean, they're so unique. So you know, Hitchcock was an innovator. He was an experimentalist. Um, but I think when you scrutinize it as a collection, then you start to see how the films talk to each other as well, yeah. which is so interesting. And of course, you've got like the British period, the American period, and and then they're coming back to the, to, to the UK as well. So, yeah, I think it's be, it's always been there. Um and I think there's a lot, there's a lot of crossover between Hitchcock and horror, not just the more obvious like Rebecca and um, Psycho. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of things in terms of, I guess, suspense. Mm-hmm. You know, and how Hitchcock mm-hmm. uses suspense and how he, again, just brings us into his world. And it, it uh, it feels like a lot with horror, you know, there's there's a lot of risk taken involved in horror usually, like a lot yeah. of the times because of budget restraints and things like that. And I think Hitchcock was someone who took a lot of risks and was very inventive. So I see a, a bit of a reflection between the two worlds there as well. Oh, yeah. That's, that's so brilliantly said because I think we obviously think of Hitchcock hand in hand with suspense. Um, absolutely. And, you know, and and I would agree just the way that the stories come together, the way kind of all of the elements from story to 
what we see presented on screen. Some, the the way that the shots are composed and all of that. Um, absolutely. And, and yeah, I mean, I think with Hitchcock, a lot of people's starting point is, is psycho, especially if you're leaning more towards kind of that horror um, star, because I mean, psycho is psycho and it's, <laughs> it's such a blueprint, um, mm-hmm. you know, for the slasher genre. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Well, again, I am so thrilled to, to have you here. And, and as you mentioned, we are going to be talking about, uh, taking, uh, one step further into, uh, the world of Hitchcock and the women of Hitchcock and talking about mothers. Because I feel that the mother characters that we see in some of these films are, fascinating and i they are very i think um good examples of exploration of some of these ideas around gender and um and things and just a lot of connective tissue there and as i mentioned we've talked a little bit about hitchcock here on the pod, we've also talked about mothers because in a way that the relationships with uh, mothers plays out in Hitchcock, you can see a lot of that as it connects to disability, uh, kind of these parents that seem so entrenched, so kind of clawed in to mm-hmm. their children's lives in both interesting, toxic ways um, and I'm really excited to, to talk about them. And the two films that we're going to be talking about today are, uh, The Birds and Psycho. And I cannot tell you that I, it had been a while since I had watched The Birds. And so I sat down and watched it and kind of felt this whole new spark because mm-hmm. I was like oh like I've always really liked this movie but I'm like this is so good I am yeah. completely entranced so I'm so excited to to get to talking about it so let's start let's kick things off by talking about Psycho um and Mrs. Mrs. Bates. Now, the story of Psycho is pretty, um, is pretty, I mean, it's Psycho. It is Norman Bates, Bates Hotel, uh, murder and, uh, kind of discovering, uh, a very kind of sinister relationship between mother and son that doesn't end the way that you think is going to be and obviously this is a text that has also been um i think explored from angles of talking about sexuality and gender as well um we're starting to see that pop up more and more i know not too long ago in fact i think fairly recently within the last couple of months i know that horror queers did an episode on psycho as well uh really examining like 
really kind of uh, zeroing in on that, and it's it's fascinating. Um, but let's talk about Norman and Mrs. Bates. So we have a mother and son relationship, and as the film is first starting, as we're getting kind of introduced to uh the Bates Hotel, Norman, and and we're learning about uh Mrs. Bates. What what kind of relationship are we are we establishing here? Would you how would you define it? Between between, between Norman her. and Mrs. Bates, what are we starting to get kind of the inkling of as we learn more and more? From from Marion's arrival, do you mean? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think before it's just something worth noting that I picked up this time because I was looking at the film specifically through the lens of mothers. That actually, in the opening scene with Marion and Sam, mm-hmm. they're having a conversation, and there's this suggestion of that she should turn in mother's picture to the wall, which I thought was really interesting. So already you've got this, this echo of like mother and sex, and mm-hmm. turn the picture away, which is is really fascinating. And I think just a word on. I guess contextualizing these films and, and where they come in Hitchcock's career. I think these two films are back to back. So we're in that really privileged position of having them next to each other and but just such two different representations of of mothers. Um, you know, I see one as really being, you know, about the horror of human nature, and then one about like the horror of like animal nature as well and how that feeds into different kinds of nature. Mm-hmm. And in both films, we've got things like the change of location from the city to, you know, somewhere more remote, which is interesting. Yeah. We've got people being attacked in small spaces and discovering like attic spaces, basements. So we've got all those sort of flavors in there as well and a real absence of father figures. But, um, to your, to your question, I think, you know, we, Norman killed his mum in this act of, we would call it like Oedipal rage when he found her in bed with another man following the death of his father. So that mother-son relationship is really driven through motives of sexuality and power. Whereas if you like, when we come to the birds, it's more, it's more about loneliness. And here mm-hmm. I think as well, it's this idea of, you could look at it two ways which I find with Hitchcock so much which is what I love it's like you could critique it or then you could say it's quite progressive in that mother figure here is not the nurturing passive figure of the 50s that we've seen Mm. she's a monstrous figure (laughs) which is and she's not somebody that is this this kind of you know um quintessential like 50s mother yeah. She's she's actually quite uh she's a she's a dominating stern authoritative force. So I think it's a in terms of when we look at just representations of mothers in general in horror as well as in Hitchcock, it's really interesting that we get that at this time, you know. And I think the 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 dynamic that's being suggested is that and of course, of course, what's really important I think to remember is that we don't ever get to hear this specifically from Mrs. Bates herself, she doesn't actually have a voice. So we're not getting the female perspective. Um, her story's told 
through other people so I think that is a really key thing to keep in mind here but so it's all these suggestions of like her being demanding controlling you know um childhoods as well seem to be at one point at least a happy time for Norman because he does have this moment where he says to Marion you know I had a happy childhood my mother and I were more than happy and I think well that points to something interesting but then yeah. another part of my brain wants to go, is he just idealizing it? Was it really? Like, <laughs> because again, it's just, you can throw question marks over so many of, of the things that are swirling around in this Hitchcockian universe. But, you know, Norman, as we see him now, I guess, does not have a family unit. So, you know, there's a lot of isolation and, you know, he seems to be as protective over his mother as she is over him, albeit they they express that in different ways I guess you know when when Marion says things like put her in some place he's mm-hmm. very protect he's very protective over that and you know he's very permanently disagrees with that you know it's like this idea of like her fire would go out I think he says she needs me yeah so it's this idea he's alone and he needs perhaps he needs to feel needed and this is a way of cultivating that love that and you're you're so right and and it, it is something to to kind of play with because mrs bates doesn't exist um she's surprise <laughs> yeah she's a figment um or a part of norman and so what we learn about her is all constructed based on that foundation we never know what the childhood uh truly consisted of because it's based off of what norman is saying and we don't know if this is some kind of idealized version um because everything about his mom has kind of been constructed um and you and i think it's interesting in that we think of mrs bates as this very domineering and overwhelming figure when she doesn't even exist (laughs) um it's almost like he is creating i guess one of um one of the things that i was thinking in watching it um just um a, a, a bit ago for this record was he really does seem to be defining his mom and how he thinks this relationship should be um, because he is so isolated and there's this outsider uh, feel to Norman that he doesn't quite fit in. There's always something, I mean, when Marion comes to the hotel, he's very affable. He's very kind. Um, but there's just something a little awkward um, because he's not someone who's probably around people a lot. Um, and so he, I think, has maybe constructed these relationships, the relationship between him and his mom, to kind of represent what he thinks it should look like. Uh, a son caring for his aging parent, which we've talked a lot about um, on the pod um, in terms of kind of that intersection of aging and disability. 
and how you know there is that expectation that as our parents and grandparents and, and loved ones who are aging get older, we are there to provide care and kind of the the complex feelings that can come with that. Mm-hmm. Um that almost resentment and the guilt, um, the the anger, all of those things. And I think that Norman has kind of created this dynamic to feel like there's that that element of fitting in. And that was something that really struck me on this watch. Yeah, it's interesting to, I'm just thinking with you saying about the comments of how large she looms in our memory, considering that she doesn't exist. And I think maybe that's, it's a reflection of we're feeling what Norman feels. She seems yes. so huge to us because she's so, such a big character to him. And I think that's what Hitchcock so adapted doing is making us feel and putting us in the spaces that our characters feel. And I guess let's not forget that Norman's a potential, I mean, I call him, villain slash victim because yeah. again we're straddling two different potential readings but this is after the death of Marion our alliances switch and I think as much as obviously there is a criminal aspect to Norman one cannot help but empathize with him Especially, I imagine, if you're someone who has had that kind of a domineering mother figure or parent figure at all in your life. Yeah. No, and it does make you, it does make you truly think about what their dynamic was when she was alive and when he was younger. Um, Because we are obviously bringing in lots of mental health components here. Um, And I, I think we kind of can can now understand um norman is having uh did or disassociative identity disorder where the you know you talk so much about kind of the villain and victim uh interplay and it's the the villain is all put on one element of that character and that's mrs bates and so he's able to kind of uh, you know, go away from that and and be away from that. Make it something that's outside of him in yeah. that way. And and I find that really interesting. And it makes you think about what you know, knowing that he did kill his mom. Um, as you mentioned, after you know discovering her in bed, um, and going back to the comment that he makes to Marion about his childhood, you know, what, what was that dynamic? Um, and, you know, was this something that, you know, were these issues kind of percolating with Norman from a very young age? Or is this all again, just part of a, uh, you know, part of that construct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I like what you said there about the separation and he be, him being able to like go, you know, almost compartmentalize. Because one of the things that I wanted to talk to is how Hitchcock uses, which he always does so just incredibly space to mm-hmm. communicate 
these more subtle well, I guess they're not subtle, but the way he the way he executes it because it's done so well, it feels very subtle. But how he talks of those like dynamics and those conflicts within the characters. Mm-hmm. So we've got we've already mentioned like the the space of like the the cellar and but we've also got the motel, which is a very front facing social place yeah it's like quote unquote normal I hate to use that word but it's it's the the normal space where norman can feel accepted he can be norman yep. the house is very private it's off limits that's mother's space you know and i think it's very important that that overlooks the motel it is high up so it's this idea of us here asserting this power or here representing power over norman as he sees it and literally the only time when the mother crosses over into the motel is during the murder of Marion. We see Norman go back and forth between the two spaces, but that's the only time when mother crosses the boundary from, I guess you call it the private, the home space to the to the public space. So you think that's incredibly interesting about if we're going to look at what kind of threat she represents and et cetera. Um, but again, is this Norman projecting his own fears about those threats? Mm-hmm. Is he using his own mother as a mask to conceal his, some of his own fears? Um, and then, of course, I can't not mention the bedroom space and just how preserved like things are. It's almost like a museum. And that dent in the, the bed always gets me because it's like, is it that it's not being... It's is he is he literally just moved her corpse and that's the yeah. that's the dent from his mother, or is it that maybe he sleeps there and it's a dent from him? I wonder. I had not really considered that, and that is wow. That is that is really interesting, very interesting, and I love what you said just about space because it's not even something like it's something that you I think it's something that is in your mind in watching the film but you articulated it and framed it so brilliantly in that the house overlooks it's it's this kind of it's a it's a beast of a house it's a huge house and you know when we think about it's just one person living there it's uh it is it, it's it's a strange thing, but it it's just always there in the background when we get a mm-hmm. lot of these outside shots of the hotel. And I love this idea of Mrs. Bates being represented by this house. It's bigger than everything kind of figure right there in the background. And Norman being represented by the much smaller contained uh hotel and you know again I think struggling to kind of find that that place of normalcy and of society and (laughs) having that that thing in the background kind of like poking and prodding um (laughs) I think one thing in terms of talking about space too is I I think the separations of the space obviously makes sense in terms of you know again Mrs. Bates is going to be an, an older figure had she been alive. 
And so it's, you have like these long um, paths. It's certainly not the most accessible um, space. And so you create even more of a distance there. So it makes sense why, you know, at the beginning, we're like, well, she's just up there. Why isn't she around? Why didn't she come down and, um, you know, be part of uh, this hotel and, and be talking to guests too. And it's like, oh, well, I, maybe she has some difficulty getting uh, down to the hotel and back up. And, and you can kind of begin to justify if you don't know how the story ends. Like, oh, yeah, she's probably a little bit housebound, which makes it even more of that kind of off limits mm-hmm. uh, space. Yeah, no, that's a that's a terrific point. Yeah, just again, it's distance and separation and heavy impositions at the window. It's like a watchful eye. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, one thing that you had also um, thrown in the notes, and and I would love for you to kind of chat and expand on this is repression because we've mentioned <laughs> it uh, kind of here and there. But repression, I think, plays uh, a really interesting kind of thread mm-hmm. in this film. So why don't you kind of kick off and, and talk a little bit about how you see repression kind of entrenched in the story? Oh, entrenched is the word. Um, <laughs> yeah, so Norma's really the agent of, or oh, she's represented as the agent of repression, but not directly, because of course this is done through Norman. You know, we see lots of um, repression through speech. You know, you can't say things like mattress and you know mm-hmm. bathroom, and there's a lot there that I think is a slight tell. You know, um, his moods often change as well. You know, he I feel like he's often repressing mother within himself. Yeah. Because if you watch him, he, he often grins when he's, he's talking of his mother. We, of course, get that grin right at the end, that final shot. So I feel like it's revealing something. It's almost there's something, I don't know if you'd agree, but there's something childlike sometimes about the performance of Norman. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So there's that infantilization there as well. And I, I, I just wonder, is it mother coming through? And one of the things that, one of the beautiful uh, things that I think Hitchcock does to to not again he never says it but he just shows it and if you if you look then you see it and the car Marion's car in the swamp for me acts as a form of repression as well it's something he's trying to push down and he watches it and we see it literally slowly blop 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 mm-hmm. okay but he's unable to keep that hidden because what happens at the end of the film we see it being pulled back up so it's like mother just will not be repressed it's like she's she's here to stay <laughs> as is the discovery of her body as well you know in the cellar that's not something that he can repress either yeah yeah i i i like that um and i think you're you're exactly right kind of with the exposing of mother the exposing of the cars and I, it really is about these things, I think, that Norman wants to hide and 
um, really compartmentalize, keep them in a certain space, um, being exposed and what that means. And it, and I love that you also mentioned infantilization because I think that this is something, again, we've talked about with some different films, but I think also uh, within kind of a disability context, infantilization often uh, is, is a complex piece of a relationship that we have with um, you know, our parents or guardians, because, you know, uh, especially for those of us who have had disabilities since birth or from a very young age, our parents or our guardians have to take on a certain, uh, role of caregiver that looks a lot different than a child who doesn't have those, um, additional kind of health challenges. And it does, um, uh, it can kind of play out just in how these relationships are formed and it can be really difficult when um you know a a child is getting to an age where it's like okay well I want to move out I want to do these things on my own I want to have more independence and a parent can really struggle with that and want to um and want to stay super attached to their kid and it's not necessarily out of uh you know uh, a reason lacking of love um and true care for their child it's worry and it's mm-hmm. i don't know what um you know who who will be there for my kid who's going to be able to help um my kid i know my kid best i've been there with my kid we've been through so much and you just see these really um, you know, oftentimes not great dynamics become part of that relationship. And I, and I see some, some similarities with Norman and mother. And again, going back to what was that childhood like and how, how did those pieces get formed? Because I would have to say that that is something that at least was beginning to take shape and root while she was still alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, it's, it's a, the infant, infantilization is such a, such a relevant point because, you know, sometimes I watch friends and obviously I know who my friends are when they're with me. And then I see them with their parents and I go, oh my goodness, they are slipping right back into child parent relationships. This is yeah. not two adults. This is an adult and a child. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I think also with the repression, you had the sexuality um, that plays a part and um, certainly in a disability context, sexuality is, is part of that infantilization of, you know, individuals with disabilities don't have sex. That's just the way, that's just the way it is. No, it's absolutely not the way it is. Yes, we are sexual beings too, but that's something that we, we often have that repression that comes in and connected to usually those 
um, early formed dynamics with parents saying, well, no, you're not ready. There's, you, you don't need this. This isn't going to be something that you need in life. I, and so, uh, obviously sexual repression plays, I think, again, uh, you can kind of see, um, with how Norman reacts and relates to Marion, um, in in when she arrives at the hotel and they're getting to know each other a little bit. Oh, what a fantastic scene that is. Oh, it is amazing. And you see just like you said, you can literally literally see in the performance just this I have to quash down these feelings. I have to I have to do this. I have to do this. And um it's all just very, very interesting and there's that sexual nature to it. Yeah, and I think he, you spoke about him being an outsider, and I think Marion coming from the city and representing, having that, you know, quote-unquote regular life, and, you know, we know that she's got the lover and the social side and the the job, you know, and I think he looks to her and thinks, do you know, it, it almost highlights the tragedy of his own life and existence. Yeah, she kind of represents the things that he may wants he may be striving towards but doesn't have um yeah i i find that so so interesting but yeah it is you you see a lot of particularly in 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 these scenes with marion the just the repression playing out i think on on lots of different fronts and then you have the angle with mother kind of being you know and as she's kind of uh introduced to us we see how she kind of plays uh, a part of that as well um i find that all incredibly fascinating um before we talk about kind of how the story itself gets wrapped up with mother and norman is there any other kind of components to the relationship between Norman and mother that stand out to you as maybe something that you've noticed more <laughs> more recently as you know we always go back to these films after certain uh periods of time and, and re-examine it and something will always pop out to us is there something that um maybe in more recent watches you've been like oh I hadn't even thought about this or I didn't even notice this interesting piece yeah I think it's a film I've just I've watched studied written about so much I think it's more I, I I try and internally think about what's the internal worlds of these characters and um and I, you know, also where Hitchcock puts us with these characters and, you know, who we root for. And I just think, I think more and more about the fact that this is a female character that feels so omnipresent, but is completely absent to me is really interesting. And as there's, there's really interesting parallels, I think, to be had with Rebecca, another film of Hitchcock's where the character feels everywhere but they're actually absent and I think it's a fantastic just a fantastic thing to consider and think about 
because I guess not only does it mean that Norman can project whatever whatever he chooses but so can we um so we get to decide how to read mother and how to read this relationship and yeah of course Hitchcock's putting up these little signposts about sexuality and you know repression but you know as you said that you know more and more this film's being reassessed from different perspectives and I think you know my ears are open to those and it's just it's such a for a film that was I mean Hitchcock took a risk making this film because uh, nobody wanted to finance it so Mm -hmm. (laughs) he had Mm -hmm. to put it through his own production company it's 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 striking always to me how modern it feels yeah that's it's very true um and I feel that way with a lot of Hitchcock's film there is just this there's a freshness to it. There's um, there's something that's so it doesn't feel like a time capsule. Uh-huh. There's obviously yeah. pieces of that um, because films are made when they're made and they reflect the time and the place um, of which they're made. But you're right, like you totally, you totally. It it does it doesn't feel so dated, I should say. Um, there's so much that you can take out and it still feels relevant and interesting um to to kind of consider. It feels still very innovative. Um I I can't remember where I read this or heard this. Um, this might have been when I was listening to the horror queers podcast episode um they were talking about the remake of psycho so you know they're gus van sands shot for shot kind of i think there's a little bit of uh fudging but they really wanted to do a shot for shot a remake of psycho and they certainly did that i think with script and there was a particular shot, and for some reason it's not coming to mind, in Psycho that they just couldn't figure out how to nail it. Wow. The way that Hitchcock had. they Because you're dealing with different technology at the time. Cameras with autofocus and just different size and different, just kind of different things that you're having to figure out. And they were trying to like replicate a shot and they're like, can't. <laughs> we don't know. Like we're, we're trying and we just don't know exactly how to nail it. And so when we talk about kind of that innovation and freshness of a film, I think that also plays a part in, in having something that's really visually interesting and, and, uh, you know, kind of keeps us wrapped up i love the world that i love how you described early on about uh hitchcock being a world builder because i love directors that that's their kind of their uh skill set is creating these films where you are just there mm-hmm. um yeah well gomero yeah. del toro is another case in point and he's hugely influenced by hitchcock if you look at his work Hitchcock's fingerprints are all over. Sure. Um, 
and I think that that, you know, being in, being into, I think, a, I think a director <laughs> that's able, <laughs> able to do that, I think does add in this longevity because you, or longevity of being able to kind of relate to a film because it's just, this is them. They've created this, this piece of life that we can enter into and we, we understand, I think kind of on an intuitive level, the, the, the rules as they roll out and we just kind of uh, take it all in. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the ending of the film and uh, the ending, I guess, of the relationship between uh, <laughs> Norman and mother, although it isn't the ending <laughs> of that relationship. Uh, so we talked about mother is discovered. We see Marion's car pulled out from the water. So the events of the film conclude um we see all of the the things kind of come together and <laughs> you would think that the discovery of <laughs> of mother and now norman being locked away would mean okay well now it's a it's a reality for for norman mother doesn't exist um he can't that isn't part of the of the story that he can present now Mm -hmm. but he still does because we get mother speaking at the end and and i don't know if you want to talk a little bit about what your takeaways are from from that i think i think there's a, a, a very interesting comment where we're told he was often all mother, but never only Norman. And I think, wow, that tells us so much that he was never wholly himself, but sometimes he was wholly as mother. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just it's just testimony to how 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 much that construct has taken over mm-hmm. Norman and um. You know, she still he still has that like chastising voice of his. You know, the, the the voice of mother is it's it's sinister and it's very like abusive and yeah. you know it's you know oh you know it's sad when I have to condemn my own son. So it's that bullying parental voice again of that like nothing's ever good enough. You're useless. It's like it's very derogatory towards him, and I just get this real claustrophobic choke and feeling that he's in this cell now forever having to listen to this to this this mother side just being abusive and I think one of the elements that I love to assess in Hitchcock's films are the endings because it's so ambiguous and often Hitchcock's playing with uh, our expectations and, and what appears, as you said, it appears like, okay, normally we would expect, okay, Norman's obviously going to, 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 to prison, but he's exercised at least from his mother, like that at least he's free from. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they're not just Norman and, and what his future looks like, but we're reminded then that Marion's dead and there's a sister that's been bereaved and a a partner that's been bereaved. 
it 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 looks like all, all the ends are tied up and isn't this cathartic, but it's far from it. <laughs> yeah. No, and I love what you said about mother at the end and her tone. Because we talked about how during the the meat of the action of the film and as we're we're kind of understanding the development of of Mrs. Bates as a character through Norman, you know, we we talked about how he's kind of using this idea of his mother as kind of like that's the villain. This is who commits these crimes. It's not me. Norman is a nice guy. He's he's a sweet guy. He people come in, they talk to him, he checks them into the hotel. Everything is great with Norman, it's mm-hmm. mother. And then we see her do the flip, which is like, you did this, not me. I couldn't hurt a fly. This is you. And so it is, you know, that I think it's a really great example of that. I mean, for lack of a better word, I guess, kind of like codependency on each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of, of being able to use each other to justify um, these these more sinister and evil impulses that are being played out. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. It. I think it's this. Yeah, this idea that as well that you said you know that norman's projecting the villainy onto mother and i think it's interesting that a villain is a woman mm-hmm. but i think that tells us a lot about norman and his feelings and where he feels his feelings should be and where they are you know so <laughs> yeah and to that end i mean it it's important to note that when marion is killed um norman is dressed up as his mother has truly taken on that role. Um, mm-hmm. And when he comes back as Norman, he's horrified. Like yes. he's absolutely horrified by what he sees. Yes. It, like, this can't be an act that is that is a genuine horrified reaction. Yes. So you do see that separation for him in, in the personality. is very, very much kind of a representation of DID. So I, yeah, um, it it was really wonderful going back and watching this movie and honing in on that relationship, that context and, and being able to, to just see like, all right, what are the things that I haven't noticed before? What are things that I can really zero in on and, and find interesting and, and yeah, just from the minute that we're establishing those kind of first moments with Norman and we're learning a little bit about mother to the very end, you, you realize that it's the, the journey becomes a little bit different each time. I think you take a little bit, you take something a little bit different from, from what they're saying and what they're doing. So love it. All right. So we've talked about psycho, but now let's talk about, villains of a different kind (laughs) ones that are air-based let's talk about the birds and 
like I had mentioned at top, this was a movie I hadn't watched in a while. I remember watching it for the first time when I was pretty young. I think it was something that was like on cable um, at one point. Um, and I watched it and thought, you know, it, a movie about killer birds, you don't necessarily think is especially for I think for for folks who like their horror I think of a certain level of just kind of like this gruesome um you know like I don't birds like bird like birds um but it is horrifying and I love the the slow build mm-hmm. um of the tension and I yeah um just really kind of fell in love with this film on re-watching it for this record so let's talk about um so the story um of the birds do, do you want to kind of give just a quick little basic synopsis of of the world that Hitchcock has created here. Sure, yeah. So um the the birds is at nineteen sixty-three. Mm-hmm. Uh, Melanie Daniels, played by Tippy Hedron, is a San Francisco socialite who pursues a love interest with a man named Mitch Brenner. Uh, so she she travels again like Marion from a city to somewhere more remote so from San Francisco to Bodega Bay a a town which is then besieged by seemingly unprovoked bird attacks um and so this is a very it's a remote rural quite insular community mm-hmm. um and again I'm just thinking we've got another outsider you know, mm-hmm. uh, Melanie's the outsider coming in. Um, and so, yeah, we've, we've got, obviously it's that the, the birds are, I guess, the top notes of the horror. Mm-hmm. But for me, like, this is really a film that's about female relationships specifically. Yes. Um, forget Mitch. For me, this <laughs> is, <laughs> he's just a means by which to bring three women together. Yes. Like, th- that's the way I read him. For me, this is, this is a very, there's such strong feel, female energy in this film. Um, and again, I'm, I'm, I can't help but think of Rebecca, where again, that's a film that I read as, there's, a, you know, a lot of queer readings in there as well. You've know, got three women. And again, there's a triangle here. And I think there's so many unspoken tensions and attractions and mm-hmm. journeys and arcs that go on with these women. Um, one of the things that I guess fascinates people the most is this idea of well, why did the birds attack? And, you know, what what's Hitchcock trying to do there? I think he's often spoken about how he just wanted to bring chaos. And I I think that does feel to me very Hitchcockian. But I think, you know, in in the famous interviews that Truffaut did with Hitchcock, you know, he he was like, "This this is a speculation, it's a fantasy, you know, which is what makes it such a 
really good film to analyze and I think birds as well are not creatures that we think of as well we do now thanks to Hitchcock but it's not it's not a, a menacing creature that most people are frightened of so yeah. we've got Hitchcock corrupting um, inv- invoking terror as he did with bathrooms you, you know like <laughs> making us scared of like things that are in our lives this isn't like a giant alien that we'll never see this yeah. is birds that when we walk out in the street birds are there this is it's like I, I love how he does that and I think I'd be really interested to hear what, what your reason of what the birds represent is I think for me there's just so many possibilities I, I read them as you know, Lydia, the the mother figure here, chastising Melanie, perhaps wanting it out, some kind of punishment for sexuality, promiscuity. Mm-hmm. I, they always seem to arrive at specifically at moments of tension between them, which I think mm-hmm. is interesting. Um, also, you know, this idea of Lydia, I guess, feeling attacked as well. You know, attacked in her own home, her life's turned upside down, and you know, I think. We do get that Hitchcock just can't help and I'm so glad that he does it. When Melanie's in San Francisco, at the start, there's a, a shot of a, a flock of birds. So it's like we first see them in the city. So I'm always curious of, does she bring them with her? <laughs> you know? And I, I also think it's just he presents Melanie so much like a bird, you know, yeah. you see her gliding on water and the way the car careers around the country lanes. It's, there's so much to dig into. But yeah, I'd be really interested to hear what what's your interpretation of what the birds might represent. No, and I love what you said about just, just now about Molly bringing the chaos with her. Um, <laughs> because I think... It's, and I think it's Lydia, maybe, who says it, but it's, you know, this didn't happen before you came. Oh, it's the woman in the, um, in the cafe and she calls her a witch. Yes. And so, that's right. Um, So, I I do kind of love that, that piece. I also love what you said about it just being chaos because it's in these <laughs> moments of chaos that we often have to really deal with things because everything has kind of come to a head and we don't have time to kind of you know procrastinate to put things off to not go to a place that we don't want to because it's about survival it's about um lots of different things and so i think so I think, you know, going off of, of that, I think, you know, watching it now, I get, you know, very pandemic kind of vibes of mm-hmm. communities having to come together to protect itself. And you get elements of that also with, you know, you have Lydia, Mitch's mom, who is older. Um, They're trying to protect the children um particularly you know you see uh that when uh melanie uh goes to the school mm-hmm. to get um uh, to get kathy and it, it, i do like what you said about it also being a very female centric film and how much is just kind of a 
a plot device to bring (laughs) uh, these characters together. And I also really find um, that element really fascinating. I like, um, I really like the character of Annie and Mm -hmm. kind of what she represents as being someone who we understand had a connection to to Mitch, liked him. They kind of had a bit of of a thing, but Lydia it was like, no, uh, I don't think so. Um, and so we also then get that sense of you know going back to what we talked about with Mother and Norman. You get Lydia, who is very much a real person, very much a real character, not dead, not a figment of uh imagination or uh representation of a mental illness but someone who is having trouble kind of untangling themselves from their child and melanie and annie uh kind of being a representation of you have to <laughs> at some point you have to be able to to um to push away and allow these other women to to be in their life and realize that you're not being replaced because I think that's a lot to me where I think Lydia's standoffishness is is you know she's Mitch's mom and she feels that these women will kind of take her place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when we first meet Lydia is at the the cafe and she's so frosty and she's really sizing up Melanie but yeah I mean I to me I think you get into the elements of um you know just her realizing that her son is his own person with these other people in his life and Mm -hmm. she mentions that he comes up He's based in San Francisco, but comes up to visit her and Kathy every weekend. Um, so, yeah, I think all of that's really kind of a really interesting um, dynamic that we start to, that we get established. And then, of course, we see, I, I think one of the most interesting things about the film is how these relationships develop. And, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think if we often with Hitchcock's characters, it's when we consider where people start and where they end up. It's we we can't imagine it. We think about Scotty at the start of Vertigo. We we cannot imagine that he's going to do perform this horrendous makeover of a woman. It's it's in this first meeting then where we see Lydia at the cafe. She meets Melanie, and she's so she's quite she's so frosty. But she's she's obviously sizing her up. Yeah. And I, I always am struck by how similar the two women look, the hairstyles and the suits. <laughs> it's uh it's striking. Um, you know, she's very arch, she's again, she's very authoritarian to begin with. And she but she also I think once you've watched the film through a few times, you can identify this force field around her that she builds, you know. These these mothers as well, they're often playing in patriarchal male worlds. And 
but she is such a strong character and she does go on a journey and I think as does Melanie and um you know both women drop some of those boundaries and I actually think they've got a lot in common um you know both have lost somebody been estranged from someone close to them both are struggling with abandonment issues uh I think they're both very misunderstood as well. You know, Melanie has to contend with the press and, you know, all the mistruths that are being written about her there. And then Lydia's got expectations that she has to live up to, you know. Um, And then in comes Melanie and she kind of like disrupts all that. And, uh, you know, I think I think it's the the journey that they both go on. And I'm sure we'll, we'll get to it. It's just it's almost as though there's like a cross between them and one starts off very strong and another a bit more fragile and then there's almost like an exchange between them yeah I love that um and I love that you kind of put it in that they're both on their own journeys but they're very similar journeys of how they they do come together and one of the things that I really like about the character of Lydia, it's really easy to have kind of that stereotypical mom, um, matriarch character that is, you know, domineering and a little too hands-on, a little too involved with their child. And you have this outside person coming in and, you know, upsetting things a little bit. Um, but Lydia is so much more, I think, interesting in that she is sizing her up at first. You can see when Mitch is like, yeah, she's coming, she's coming to dinner. Mm-hmm. And Lydia's like, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah. she never, like, it's never in, I think, a, you know, just an over the top, you know, I am your mother, and this is what I'm going. It's it, it. There's something no. really nuanced, very nuanced, yeah, and real about yeah. it. Yeah, it's not it's not two dimensional at all. And I think there's a lot again. The repressed here, like mm-hmm. you know, one of the things I wanted to touch on is like sexuality, and I think I think there's a real argument that. Lydia's quite judgmental of this relationship, but I wonder if she's quite, I wouldn't say jealous, but I think if she feels something in herself that she she misses or she feels like she can't express. Yeah. Melanie's a very sexual character. I mean, she owns a bit like Lisa from Rear Window. She really owns her sexuality in a very positive way. Yeah. And, you know, she's coming into this very sort of pure world. Um and I always feel that people who impose purity, often it denotes a lack of freedom in their own lives, that they don't feel that they perhaps have the room to express. And we hear that story about her being in the na- naked in the fountain in Rome, you know? Yeah. Um. So I really feel like there's an eroticism and a, you know, a sexual energy to Melanie that perhaps under the surface just raises something some kind of response in um in Lydia you know and I think it's really funny when when she and Mitch have the conversation about this they're they're drying dishes and he's like yes dear yes darling Mm -hmm. it's almost like 
they're a married couple having this conversation at the end of the day. It's very strange. It is. And she doesn't, I mean, just the casting of Lydia and her appearance, she doesn't look that much older than Mitch. So you're, I thought that too. Um, It's like, uh, that's, that's a, that's a that's a different layer that it's I another spanner in the works, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um but I you you bring up a, a really interesting thing about the outsider coming into this really remote um town. And it's a beautiful little town. Um mm. on the surface, but it's yeah. always like what's underneath. <laughs> um but you know, it's what a lot of people you know, uh, especially on the coast, just these little beautiful um, coastal communities that are really connected. You know, we we think a lot about that in, you know, I grew up in a very rural, small town area. And there is that connectedness, but there's always that what is underneath. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have, you know, it, Often in these communities, you have families and folks that have been there for generations. Like this is, this is where they've lived and been established. And when you have someone new coming in, um, or someone coming in that perhaps will change things up, um, which is obviously a plot device that we see across all types of things, but it, always runs the threat of exposing I think a little bit of that and again adding into that chaos and mm-hmm. the confrontation of it um and yeah she does uh, bring Melanie does have like this very confident self-assured um energy to her that is just something that I feel Hitchcock is a master at just having these women live comfortably in themselves um and and just unabashedly and unapologetically Mm -hmm. um you never have um moments where melanie is um ashamed or apologizing for yeah i jumped naked in a fountain what of it like no, it's like even when she goes to Annie's and they have that conversation, it's like become obvious that there's a history. She's like, puts a cigarette out on the floor and she's like, I'm going for my man. It's like. <laughs> yeah. And she, yeah. Has, she has such an interesting, I think, dynamic with Annie as well. Because again, you have these two women that I think have a lot in common in terms of just being very comfortable with themselves and who they are and what they want in life. And you do get a bit with any, you know, because she's part of this community, probably feeling a little bit more of that connective tissue to, okay, well, this is what we have to do and this is how things go. But I do like, they, they have such an, a wonderful relationship. And I kind of wished that we could have like a buddy picture with them (laughs) um kind of doing their own shenanigans but um i i like that you framed kind of the the way that we 
begin to unpack the character of Lydia is through these other women and not necessarily through her son. It's through these other women and their um, dynamics with her. Um, So one of the things that you had mentioned and we talked a little bit about, but maybe we can get more specific is jealousy Um, because that plays, I think, a role, especially early on with Lydia's character. Um, yeah. What, how, how, how do you think we see that playing out and how do we see it change? In uh-huh. Life through yeah. The- yeah. I think when I speak of jealousy, I, you know, obviously we've spoken about a reaction to Melanie and her reservations, but I also see a lot of jealousy in how her daughter Kathy warms to Melanie, you know? So Kathy's probably over-identifying. It's, it's a very sped up relationship between her and Melanie, um, I find, which she immediately warms to her. And she she's almost identifying Melanie as this mother figure. Mm-hmm. which again is another imposition for Lydia you know uh we see her clinging to Melanie later when she's sick as well she wants her to stay at this party and I'm thinking Mitch as we've said is away for most of the week and his her existence in Bodega Bay and then in comes Melanie you know someone from the outside who represents the city and bring an excitement escape it's like this idea of that's a life I could have outside of here. And maybe it represents, we don't see tension, like micro tensions really between Kathy and Lydia, but one was imagine as she gets older, they will definitely manifest. And I think part of her maybe looks to Melanie and identifies or projects or just sees something there that's very attractive. Um, and, and Melanie, you know, in terms of her relationship with Kathy, I really think for her, for Melanie, this is somebody who just really accepts her for who she is. Yeah. There's no judgment there at all. And I think, you know, I I guess we'll touch upon Melanie's disclosures about her own mother in a moment. But I just wanted to say, I don't know if it's intentional with it being Hitchcock. I imagine it is. But um. Kathy turns 11 at her party, which is the same age that Melanie says she was when she lost her mother. And I think that is a very significant echo between the pair. And I think as much as, as much as Kathy kind of looks at Melanie and wants that excitement and that, that life outside, I think Melanie looks at Kathy and craves that kind of freedom of being a child again and maybe also that family unit that she no longer has. It's such a great point because you do see with Kathy this instant kind of lock on to yeah. to Melanie and like you said it's it's done in kind of this very uh loving and here's just this really cool person that's interesting and I want them to come to my party and and I want them to hang out and be around. And I think for Melanie, I think it's, it's that approval where you have Mm -hmm. one of the women in the house kind of scoffing and and being a little bit judgmental. 
you have the one that's just open arms and uh, really accepting. I think it probably, and it's not really, I guess, hugely, I think, explored in the film, but something that did kind of uh, stick with me in this watch in particular with Kathy and Melanie is, you know, you're exactly uh, spot on with that observation about the age of Kathy. And it's probably something with Melanie that's, you know, because she hasn't had her mom in her life from such Mm -hmm. an early age, wondering like, can I be that role for someone? Can I be um, kind of a mother or a, a carer type individual for someone, be it a child or someone who's older, because that's the other piece. We often think of women as primary caregivers. So when we think about, um, you know, uh, folks who are getting older, um, you know, it's taking care of our parents, but taking care of in-laws. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that, especially here in the U.S., a lot of that falls to women. Um, and so I, we're starting to see a change in that. I think we'll continue to see really interesting changes in in overall demographics as our population changes. Um, but I, I find with Melanie kind of confronting this idea of, you know, I, I can be here um, and supportive and caring for this child and also be here and be protecting um, this woman who's older and we have to, you know, for getting her to bed when she's, when she's been attacked and, and all of these things. So I, I really find that, that dynamic interesting. And, and yeah, it kind of stems from that, probably that bit of jealousy too, from Lydia of not only is my son into this, woman but now my daughter um is kind of latching on as well yeah exactly and I think maybe there's something about like uh Melanie seeing Kathy as her own inner child it's almost like she's meeting herself at 11 (laughs) it's heavy isn't it I know (laughs) it's heavy but that's that is that is interesting because we talked about the the similarity in appearance between um Lydia and Melanie and Kathy is kind of that younger representation. So oh I love that. I have, <laughs> that that wasn't even something I had uh thought of. But yeah, you know, we there's obviously a lot that Kathy can represent, I think, to Melanie mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, not only being that figurative child that you know because I didn't grow up with that dynamic in my life I don't know if it's a role I could take on of being Mm -hmm. someone to provide but now also being confronted with this is also a piece of me um that I that I feel like I lost and we're starting right where that happened it's all very interesting and again something that Hitchcock is just a master at 
I think, constructing um, on screen. We talked a little bit about, um, you know, we know that Melanie has some scandal coming with her. Um, she had uh, gotten herself in some uh, hot water, hot fountain water, by jumping in <laughs> nude um, to a fountain while uh, traveling. And we, um, Mitch kind of recognizes her at the beginning from her escapades. Um, but it it is mentioned, um, and emphasized, um, a couple of times in the film. She was naked. It wasn't just that she jumped into a fountain, um, and splashed around. She was naked and I think we start to get like you said she's someone who has this confidence in herself um and just has that air and I think it steps into sexuality a little bit oh yeah absolutely a hundred percent it's that's the emphasis I mean it's a scandal because not because she was in a fountain but because she was in a fountain naked I mean and that's that kind of almost perverse Hitchcock coming into play as well I guess I think you asked about how that jealousy changes then. I think, you know, we almost begin as though Melanie's a bit of a, I mean, she's got that sexual confidence, but there's something I think slightly brattish about her as well. That she, she begins almost a little bit childlike herself, you know, and Lydia's that mother character. And then I feel like the two exchange that and Melanie transforms from being this kind of prankster to this, caregiver and she starts to give to others and I feel like it's through that giving to others and letting some of her guards down that she starts to heal herself from the inside you know and Tippy's performance really that fragility that comes later on in in the film mm-hmm. as opposed to you know the sort of the sort of more assertive like smart sassy woman we see at the start just really shows her her range you know um and I think it's being given that opportunity to perhaps find a family for her and isn't it so interesting here's something on this watch that I thought I was thinking about that she buys that very motherly nightgown which is (laughs) does not feel very Melanie at all but it feels very Bodega Bay and it feels like something Lydia might wear. So I feel it's like she's almost like transforming into this, <laughs> this character, yeah. this other role, um, you know, this motherly journey. And, you know, I guess you could, you could read it as either yielding to this notion of perfect femininity, you know, you know, but that, Mitch Mitch says this thing about the lovebirds of they shouldn't be too demonstrative or too aloof and I was just like if that doesn't encapsulate how society like the pressures that society puts on women I don't know what it says you know and I think there's that lovely moment where Lydia is picking up the broken china Mm -hmm. so it's this idea I think of her her picking up the broken pieces of her life and trying to put things back together, trying to repair things, but knowing that it will never be the same again. But when she puts this together, it will be, it'll be a plate again, it'll be a cup again, but it, it's not going to be the same as, as the relationships in her life um, as well. And I think 
we spoke about the school, the schoolhouse scene. Um, there's to, to speak in favour of Lydia. Uh, so there's a brilliant book called The Women Who Knew Too Much by um, a woman called Tanya Madleski, and she talks in there about how Hitchcock's women are possessors of knowledge. They're people that discover things, uncover things. And mm-hmm. I think it's really key that Lydia, Lydia knows, so she's in bed, but she knows, she remembers when she goes to the Fawcett house and she makes that gr- gruesome discovery. Mm-hmm. She knows that the birds got in through the windows and that's what helps her to make the connection to tell Melanie to go to the schoolhouse and warn them. And I just think, again, it's just women have got this knowledge and are able to connect things and put things together. And it's such a heart to heart scene they have here. I feel I would be interested to know what you think, but I feel like almost Lydia could not have this conversation with Mitch. It's like she's able to disclose this with Melanie, Mm -hmm. perhaps because there is that distance there. And it's, it's so fascinating. It's, you know, she says to her very honestly, doesn't she? She says something something to the tune of, I don't understand you and I'm not even sure if I like you yet. But it's very honest. I mean, it's very honest. <laughs> yeah. No, I... It is... I. You're exactly right, I feel, in that... And, and, we, and we talked about this at the beginning, too, with just the complexity of women in Hitchcock's stories of that they do, they're so capable. They, they know things. They're not um, looking necessarily to have answers given to them and to be directed to do these things. They are able to, make decisions to move in the world to not only protect themselves but to protect others um and and I do like that I like that Lydia and Melanie and Annie all have these um they all have just this level of competence that we it's sad that we have to say, oh, isn't it great that you have these characters that can navigate the world in, in such kind of a, a focused way and make decisions. And um, I like what you also mentioned earlier about, you know, you have Melanie being kind of this really sassy um, kind of prankster type character. And we see her kind of shift um, into, the, I love what you you said about the fragility and a tenderness that comes out Mm -hmm. um with Melanie and it just goes to show how holistic these characters are able to be um and I think you're right that it probably is touching on something that's healing in her that she's finding this support (laughs) and this this now this family um that she can kind of be nestled into um and and i i do find that especially when we talk about um you know melanie's uh, own history with her mom because i think it's also asked 
um they're like well this happened when you were 11 do you do you have a relationship with her now and she doesn't she doesn't want to like linger on that Mm -hmm. um she just kind of says no and we um we kind of let the story continue um it's obviously such a pain painful like spot and raw spot and i think you also are are probably really right in that there is this childlike um component to her she has this bit of kind of whimsy to her that she just kind of comes into this town with birds because she met this guy at the bird shop and they had a little bit of their own meat cute in a way and she's doing something really nice but that you know and I think if you take a step back you're like is this something that a person would do like you just have this random meeting you talk about these birds and you travel this way (laughs) just to drop them off kind of covertly I don't know it's it's not I think she's masking a lot. I, I really do. And I think that sort of facade of, you know, I'm, you know, daddy's very rich and he has a paper and whatever. And, you know, I, I come from this position of privilege, but it's a very empty kind of privilege. Yeah. And then she's contending with just the expectations or, or the persona that's being constructed about who she is as well. So it's it's like, I guess she's trying to find out who she is and, and that conversation on the, the sand dunes with, Mitch is just it's heartbreaking I think he says you need a mother's care my child and and by the end of the film I'm sure we'll talk about it but I almost feel as though Melanie accepts Lydia into her life as that kind of surrogate mother figure yeah it's it is really powerful um you you just mentioned something that I find fascinating and this is you know we talk uh, kind of talking about repression going back to what we talked about in psycho but there is that element of repression within melanie like there's something that she hasn't that's holding her back mm-hmm. she's not discovering she's not tapping into and um when she you you mentioned that her dad is rich owns this paper and this is where stories of her are getting um published and she feels really defined (laughs) by this yeah that's a great word to use yeah but when she's i think here um away from that people have like this i i think sense of the stories but it's not the but it's not the thing that they really care about um, they don't know her. And so she's allowed to, I think, for the first time, maybe, start to define herself. Yeah. <laughs> and I find that so fascinating. And define herself based on these other, you know, her relationship as it's morphing with these other women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's almost like a start again. It's like a... <laughs> you know just rebuild your your sense of self and I I agree it's like yeah they are aware of these stories but they those appearances the flashiness like that doesn't that's not that's not how this community operates or how it can it's you know uh 
although there is that sort of mobbish quality to them in the cafe at the end um I think I think there's a lot Melanie sees here that's appealing to her yeah do you think that so we talked a little bit just in how we interpret the birds and just the overall bringing like the event of the film the onslaught of these birds that seem unprovoked do you think that without that being kind of a catalyst for so much in terms of putting these characters in that kind of uh, very heightened experience to make some of these decisions to kind of tap into some of these things do you think that we would have um a similar journey for these characters if we didn't have that event no no not at all I, I I think you know it's the we talked about the chaos and I think now we've had this discussion I'm thinking more deeply about the fact that Melanie seems to come with those beds that those beds representative of the traumas that she's had things that maybe she is holding back and we were going to come on to talk about the end and I've got reasons there that kind of feed into this but this idea of well those things will always be there but you can navigate through them so I think Mm. yeah I mean the the beds are almost a, a really nice metaphor that Hitchcock's using for several things and without that like you say Nicole that extreme environment that extreme situation I just don't think I think all guards would be up you know and none of these boundaries would be would come down so I think we've got to have and isn't it it's it's almost like the extreme pairs with the very human and I, I spoke about like the nature of nature but then the nature of humankind as well and I just love how those two things are happening in juxtaposition with one another in this film. Yeah. Well, and I go back to thinking about the birds being like representative of something like COVID and the pandemic. And, you know, we're talking about the journey of Melanie's character. um, Taking on more of that caregiver role um in in different ways um and we saw that in the pandemic um especially here in the states with loss of um individuals at the beginning um taking their loved ones out of these assisted living facilities or choosing to live with older loved ones or loved ones who need additional care so that they could be there but that put them in a whole different headspace of, well, now I have to do these things that I may not have had to do before. I have to figure out, you know, um, how I can transfer my, my loved one from their wheelchair to bed, or I have to figure out how I'm going to cook using the special diet that you know, my, my loved one needs, or I have to do all of these things that now, because we're not only in this shared space and really kind of contained for safety, 
but we can't have outsiders come in. We can't have, um, you know, support staff um, and in-home care often come in. And that Mm -hmm. was so challenging for so many people, continues to be challenging, I think, on some some levels for folks. Mm -hmm. And I, I really kind of saw that playing out in, in kind of that um, really tense situation of we have to make decisions, we have to do what's best for us. And now I have to figure out how I'm going to, to do this. How am I going to protect myself? How am I going to protect these people that I'm with? Um, and yeah. I, especially when you see this town kind of, you know, you talk about the, the diner scene, um, you know, just the different kind of, uh, personalities and, and how they, how they bring certain things out in each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how there's this clear, like louder voices and then not loud, you know, that really did remind me of like COVID and conspiracy theorists and, uh, you know, people that might try to steer other people or the people that might be too afraid to say anything, but will just go along with the crowd, you know. <laughs> yeah and yeah of course it's like you know if if we we become caregivers through choice or sometimes not not by choice just necessity as well it does pushes into what is a I guess it's a reflected extreme environment where emotions are going to be frayed and things you know that we wouldn't normally say do reveal about ourselves or to others will come to the surface much more readily yeah and I do find that perhaps that's something that's maybe in the back of Lydia's brain is you know we talked about how she doesn't really seem that old in the movie at all um you know when we think of like an older mother character we think of an older mother character um but she but she's not she has a young child uh-huh. um, yep. and so but you know, I think once you hit a certain age, um, those thoughts begin to seep in of who, mm-hmm. who is going to be there for me as I'm getting older and may need that additional care. And I think that perhaps, you know, I, maybe it's difficult to see Kathy in that role because she is so young. She's a child. She needs care. Um, yeah. And yeah, her children are at different ends of the spectrum, aren't they? One's like grown off and gone away, and the other's like a dependent. So yeah, because there is a big age gap between the siblings. Um, and but yeah, you know that, and I think that that's probably a little bit of why she wants to keep keep the claws in to Mitch a little a little tight because it is I'm getting older and I want to make sure that I have someone. Mm-hmm. that can be that that figure um for me and for Kathy and so I do find that you know when you are in a situation an emergency a heightened situation like a bird attack or a pandemic or any kind of natural disaster um you see those things I think become even more underscored that fear of who who really is part of this group that I can lean on Mm -hmm. um, who are these trusted and kind of 
inner circle caring folk that are really that we really need to to come together and and you you mentioned it so beautifully earlier about how Lydia kind of lets her in um and Melanie kind of accepts that invitation yeah yeah it's uh but I think it's what they have to do to get there you know and I think you, you, when you you just mentioned that about her needing Mitch around, I instantly thought for Kathy as well. And then I thought this idea of Mitch as a surrogate father figure for Kathy, yeah. and maybe when she identifies Melanie, Mitch, maybe there's a projection of well, they're my parents because that's the kind of the conventional, you know, what a family looks like. Yeah, and you, I think there is that there is that uh, interesting element of younger kids with older parents um, who yeah. maybe waited a while to have children or had a delay between kids, and here's you know um, a kid <laughs> so far down the line um, when they're at a little bit older of an age, and how that does shift because that's not something that we normally see. I think, again, as demographics and all of these things shift, I think we will see that more. And we do see people having children later in life. Um, and so you are going to I think, get pieces of that. But I, I agree. I do think that there's this, um, you know, for Kathy seeing Melanie and Mitch together and seeing them kind of like that parental unit as well it's it's really something so let's talk about this ending because <laughs> you you nailed it when you said that Hitchcock and endings <laughs> need to be talked about and they're very interesting <laughs> so we get this story we have Melanie shows up in this little coastal town Chaos ensues with birds. She finds herself kind of uh, locking arms and contained with this person that she really just met, his mom and sister. And then this woman that she kind of pretends to have a existing friendship with um, to Mitch, but doesn't really know her all that well. And Annie is a absolute... Uh, top-notch and just going with it and was like yep whatever (laughs) um so how how do we wrap up the story what notes are we left with in terms of how we've seen all of these things happen in the film we've seen these characters truly change Mm -hmm. yeah what what notes are we we sent out on well, in my in my essay that I wrote for Moving Pictures Film Club, one of the remarks I made about the ending is uh, when we face trauma, the prospect of survival doesn't always mean happy endings. Yeah. For Melanie, it seems the future will involve a lengthy and emotional healing process. So I think what I see here is like not only that, but I would actually now extend that to Lydia as well. And I'm thinking visually because Hitchcock obviously first and foremost visual storyteller you know we've got the literal road ahead no end in sight but it's a road that's covered in threat 
But crucially, Melanie's surrounded by people who like support her. So despite what's ahead, I really feel like there's a unity and there's a support here. So I feel, I imagine this is probably not what Hitchcock intended. I think he just wanted to create this idea of like, are they going to make it? (laughs) Yeah. Which maybe that is, maybe that is the reason. Are we all going to make it? But I see it more as like, we will make it. It's just remembering that along the way, there will be threat and there will be difficulties and there will be struggles. But it's almost quite a, I always feel reassured that they're, yes, they're contained, but there is that supportive feeling as well. So I I read it as a message about, yes, there's trauma that we're going to carry and there's trauma ahead, but the road is there and survival is there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it ends very, I, I think, talking about both Psycho and The Birds is so fitting because they end in kind of similar tones of there is, <laughs> I mean, there's there's a, you know, with Psycho, Norman is locked up. He's paying for what he, for the crimes that he committed, but there's mm-hmm. no respite. Um, he's still kind of locked in his own, I think, um, tormented. He's tormented. Yeah, he's tormented. He's locked in his illness. And we don't know, we don't see any sign of that being dealt with <laughs> or handled. Maybe it will. Um, and we, we're not talking or going into any of the sequels, but, um, we do, you know, that's how the film ends. Um, and <laughs> as the birds ends, the birds are still there mm-hmm. being menacing AF as they're getting out of town. <laughs> but like you said, there is this, okay, there is survival. There is this road and we can go down it and we're together and we've been through this and now we have we have this trust we have this care um that we we can survive we we can make it to the next stop now i always think because there is that question that we we talked about with you know did melanie bring the chaos with her well is she taking the chaos with her <laughs> again um you know is there going to be some birds popping out of the back seat uh uh, ready to go but i i I do like there's we think about films i think we we have become really accustomed to films ending in very final ways yeah um a very complete every everything is tied up um and hitchcock i don't think hasn't wasn't interested he wasn't interested in that no he wanted to give us questions not answers (laughs) yeah and so i i do love that and i think in terms of relationships we do see these new relationships really taking taking them forward um and and i love what you said about the healing but they can all kind of heal in their own ways but heal within that support system. Yeah. And again, it's, you know, it's all about the women. Mitch, Mitch is driving the car. It's, 
the women in the back together. It's Lydia's cradle and Melanie. It's, you know, they're joining together to support one another. It's that that's where the heart of the story is for me, at least. Yeah. And I think you're exactly right that now we have Melanie and I think a, a much different place of, of healing from, from the past as well. And I think oddly enough, maybe now moving away from what people have these preconceived notions of her, but now being around people that have been able to get to know her um, Mm -hmm. and learn about her in, in ways that are authentic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And all sides of you as well, because, you know, we're married many different, like, with different people we're different and you know there's different facets to you know a personality and I feel that we see all those different facets of Melanie and that that's that is accepted by the end yeah for sure all right so we have talked a lot about Hitchcock Psycho the birds moms moms of all kinds of all makes so (laughs) is there any any kind of closing thoughts on either of these films or um, in in exploring kind of these mother roles? Are there other Hitchcock films that you would say, okay, this is another film that I think brings another interesting dynamic to, to kind oh, of... Oh, we could do a series. Uh... <laughs> do you know... I mean, I just plucked a couple out, just a few favourites. I mean, at the top of that has got to be Marnie. Um, Bernice Edgar, she's dealing with, obviously, PTSD, guilt, sexuality, religion, and and how that's hanging over her. The idea of, like, decency and properness. And she's very emotionally cold to her daughter, again, played by Tippi Hedren in another incredible performance. But for reasons relating to incidents that happened to her in the past, which left her scarred. And, again, you mean... The, the Sean Condor, the Mark Rutland character, very complicated character. But I think the relationship between the women in this film is again, and again, it's just, we see that time and time again with Hitchcock's films where, where it's just, it makes an idea of being able to read him through gender just so challenging. Um, Notorious in 1946. So we've got Anna Sebastian there. She's mother to Alex Sebastian, um, played by Claude Rains. And she's very domineering. She's complicit. She's plotting. She's very cold emotionally. She exercises a lot of power over her son. Uh, strangers on a train. Uh, Mrs. Anthony, she, she's, can't see any wrong in her son like she's so blind she's like oh Bruno you're such a naughty boy um totally blind to his behavior she, she's kind of like the ignorant mother but she's very sweet um north by northwest we've got Clara Thornhill uh played by Jesse Weislander she's incredible she's very scolding she's very mocking yeah. of her son she treats him a lot like a child and he acts a lot like a child towards her. Something of the infantile in that relationship, for sure. And then uh, she she's back again into Catch a Thief as Jesse Stevens. A very sort of tough, 
wisecracking, quite cynical, rich widow figure, which is a nice contrast to uh, Grace Kelly's Frances. Mm-hmm. You know, she's very soft and elegant, but there's, I really feel like with um, Jesse Stevens' character, there's there's almost a masculinity to her uh, that I really like. So I guess what I'm saying here is that we just took a little walk down a, a part of the gallery of Hitchcock's mothers and just look at these women. I mean, they're, they're dynamic, they're, they're, they're not passive, they're, they're powerful, they're memorable, the fact that we're talking about them. You're, you don't hear much about Hitchcock's fathers because they don't, you know, they're just not built into the world in the same way. I think Hitchcock obviously had a deep fascination you know, with that relationship in shadow of a doubt, um, Emma Newton, the mother there, I mean, he called it Emma after his own mother who died during the making of that film. So I think, yeah, it's, it's such a rich topic to explore, you know, an extension to just the women to look Mm -hmm. at Hitchcock injecting so much time, care and giving so much over to, to these these are not like the heroines the beautiful heroines these are the older figures that i think it, he doesn't overlook them and think oh these are side characters they're they're very well thought out and they contribute and often act as really good foils or ways to expose flaws in a lot of the male characters no absolutely i could not agree agree more with that and you are right and that even, you know, obviously with uh, <laughs> the birds, you know, Lydia is a very kind of centralized character. Um, but even I think in the examples that you talked about where maybe those roles are not as central, they're still very important. They're still fully formed. Um, these are folks that you, they still go you still learn about them there's still actual characters that you feel aren't just mm-hmm. these kind of two-dimensional thoughts yeah. yeah and I love that um it, again I think it just speaks to I think a care um to the to that dynamic that Hitchcock had um in really wanting to make these characters come to life in, in a, a full-bodied way um yeah you're right that there is kind of no shortage of examples (laughs) to to dig into so um thank you so much for um digging so deep into kind of the the parental maternal dynamics of these films really just talking about these films um and i think going down some avenues that I hadn't even considered, um, which is such a treat because this is why I like having, you know, the experts, the people who are who are well versed and and can say, oh, well, I thought about it this way, and this is what they had to say about this over here. Um, it it just makes for, for such interesting conversation. So thank you so so much. And so I guess the kind of close things up you obviously uh Hitchcock is something that you talk about on the regular so where can folks find 
you and your writings and your uh, your conversations about Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, if you're not fed up by now and somehow you still want to hear more from me, then, um, yeah, then you found the right person. My podcast, Talking Hitchcock, then it focuses on the work and the world of Hitchcock. So I have film based episodes and then other episodes where I look at a topic. Um, you know, I've, I've covered Rear Window already. I've talked about Vertigo. I've talked about architecture with historians. So if you're hitch hungry, as I like to say, uh, I, I have my podcast, which is um, at hitch underscore pod on Twitter. And you can find Talking Hitchcock on uh, Apple, Spotify, anywhere else like that. And also I'm speaking at this year's HitchCon, which is an international conference. Uh, this yeah, thank you. The calls applauding me. Um this year's theme is storytelling in Hitchcock's films, and I'm talking about rope. So I'm looking forward to that very much indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, in relation to the films we talked about today, I've got a essay with uh, Moving Pictures Film Club on Melanie Daniels, which is called A Woman with Broken Wings. You can read that at movingpicturesfilmclub.com. Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Pendle Pumpkin. Uh, there's link trees within my bios that take you to all my work. And you can find Ghouls Magazine uh, at ghoulsmagazine.com and just find and follow um, Moving Pictures as well. So, yes, that's me. <laughs> awesome. So, yes, um, if if you, as Rebecca says, are hitch hungry, she's got buffets for you to... <laughs> to get into and it's all wonderful um i love your writings um i i think that you you just have this really amazing and beautiful way of just extracting some of the marrow of these characters and and of this world of breaking it apart and and really letting us see all these different fascinating and compelling components to it and um talking hitchcock is so much fun i love that it is both an exploration of uh you know the films themselves but also getting into that world and the pieces that come together um one so of many the, pieces <laughs> yes um one of the pieces that i had read um and when we covered rear window was this amazing piece that looked at the music of Hitchcock related to disability um, in Rear Window and what that how how it was constructed and and how how different pieces of it symbolize different things and and um, I love that you you kind of go down these similar paths of let's really examine. Um, you know, like we know that we love these films. These films um are classics. Um, this is definitely this isn't a camp or a cringe episode. I would say this is definitely of the classic ilk. And what makes these films classic? What makes them stand um up through time? And you know, yes, we can have a whole other six episode series talking about Hitchcock the Man and why you know we we have many thoughts and feelings about that but the but 
you know, in looking at the work in the worlds that are created, the characters that come to life for us, being able to explore all the pieces of it, I think is so, so interesting. And, and you, uh, you've given us different places to kind of play uh, in kind of that sandbox. So it's really good stuff. And all of the things that Rebecca mentioned, uh, the podcast, Moving Pictures and Ghouls, along with uh, her social media uh, links will be in the show notes. So definitely uh, give it all a gander, give it all a follow because it is great stuff. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes. So, and thank you all for listening. Um, and a huge thank you to Anatomy of a Scream, the home and heart of Bodies of Horror. Um, yes. Huge applause for Anatomy of a Scream. Um, and yeah, uh, this has been an amazing episode and, uh, I'm excited for, for what's on deck because we're going to be doing something a little bit similar with a very different director, um, which is exciting. So, uh, I'll, I'll leave that as a tease and until next time. Scream Pod Squad.